we collided with the United States destroyer, the Frank E. Evans, for the loss of 74 uh, American sailors. It was a very sad night. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. Tested our metal as a team. They held that man virtually prisoner. Terrible, terrible injustice. Alert, surface alert. Riding out a typhoon in a four and a half thousand ton destroyer. We really feared for our lives. So we got back and we did a march, and I guess that's the memory you hold was all these people booing and hissing as you went did the march. Stations I went to that turret. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Welcome to Life on the Sea, a special spin-off miniseries of Life on the Line podcast. This miniseries profiles nine veterans of the Royal Australian Navy who served in either the Korean War or the Vietnam War. HMAS Melbourne was commissioned into the Royal Australian Navy in 1955. She never fired a shot in anger, having only undertaken peripheral or non-combat roles in Confrontasi and the Vietnam War. Yet she has the reputation for being the jinxed vessel of the Navy. In 1964, Melbourne collided with the Australian destroyer Voyager, where 82 lives were lost. Of rather ironic significance, Captain John Philip Stevenson sat on the board of inquiry in regards to that incident. Then, just five years later, now under Captain Stevenson's command, Melbourne cut American destroyer Frank E. Evans in half, and 74 men on the Evans perished. In both cases, the crew were cleared of all blame, but not before Captain John Robertson in the first instance and Captain Stevenson in the second were pilloried out of the Navy. Scapegoats. One of the veterans of Life on the Sea was on the Melbourne when it collided with the Evans on the 3rd of June, 1969. This is the account of Royal Australian Navy sailor, Mark Kinder. When did you finish up your training? Okay, I joined in June 68. We were joining the fleet by the end of the year. My whole division uh, left and uh, we motored on in buses up to HMAS Albatross in Nara and disgorged our guys who were going to join the fleet our arm and continued up to Garden Island and uh, I joined Melbourne. And the next two months was pretty boring for us actually because we're still in dry dock. Melbourne had this uh, penchant for going into dry dock all the time. We uh, then uh, did our workup trials, uh, which was quite heavy, uh, down in Jarvis Bay, back again. We did something like a thousand throws and catches. That's uh, launching of aircraft and catching them. During that time, we had uh, Skyhawk jets, Grunman trackers, and Wessex 31B helicopters on board our ship. We were the flagship. We were um, considered a, a really, really good blue water navy in those days. Very good blue water navy, and our, our aircraft handlers and our pilots, and that, they were absolutely top notch. We were a good little pocket fleet air arm. We really were. Can you describe what you mean by Blue Water Navy? Nowadays, a lot of our Navy does coastal work and boats and so on and so forth. This was a Navy that was an anti-submarine Navy. She could be at home in the middle of the Pacific or in the middle of the Indian Ocean or doing uh, runs off Jarvis Bay, doing goodwill tours in the States and so on and so forth. She would go into areas with her escorts uh, into Blue Water, deep, deep Blue Water, as opposed to, say, coastal. And you also described about catching aircraft. Can you describe what it was like watching, you know, these flight craft take off and then land and the process of catching them, what that entailed? 
Well, it was uh, it's quite an eye-opener um, to see these things happen in real life as opposed to seeing it on TV. The noise was just overwhelming of the jets. It was an amazing place to be at the end of your teenage years, right in the middle of Vietnam and hippies, uh, to be on board something like this. It was, uh, it was an incredible adrenaline rush just to go up there and watch those jets coming in, taking off fixed-wing aircraft like the trackers and such, and um, the helicopters. It was just everything was happening on board that ship all the time, 24-7. And it was a hive of activity. And what was your role on the Melbourne? There was 80 of us. We were very, very junior sailors. And uh, my role on the Melbourne was something called an odds various, where you do a lot of different work. Um, Everybody's personal slave. Yeah, yeah, general dog's body. But it was beautiful because it gave us the run of the ship. And I knew the Melbourne, the aircraft carrier Melbourne, absolutely intimately because while it was in dry dock when we first joined, I became what they called a fire sentry. So I had to go around to where a lot of welding was happening on board the ship and just to make sure that uh, nothing, nothing sort of uh, burst into flames, relatively unskilled job, but they've got to do something with uh, their baby sailors. So uh, I was a fire sentry and it gave me the chance to get into every nook and cranny on that uh, 22,000 tonne uh, aircraft carrier. It was quite incredible to uh, know, know the ship intimately like that. And then Melbourne hits sea. Yes, we finally get to sea. Uh, we do a lot of cat traps catching the planes as they come in and uh, and throwing them off again. A lot of work with the fleet to get us up to what we call operational readiness, and it's called an ORE, operational readiness exercise. And uh, we did that in preparation for the upcoming Southeast Asian or Seato treaty um, exercises that year in 1969, and the exercises were called Operation Sea Spirit. For us, it ended in a, in a lot of tragedy. We'd left Manila Harbour at the start of the exercise with something like 100 ships in the fleet, all different countries. We were uh, the two carriers in the uh, Seattle exercise was uh, USS Kearsarge and uh, HMAS Melbourne. Around about three o'clock on uh, June the 3rd, uh, 1969, uh, we collided with the United States destroyer, the Frank E. Evans, for the loss of 74 uh, American sailors. It was a very sad night and it was our second biggest maritime outside of war tragedy that uh, Australia had been involved in. Where were you when the ship collided? I was actually uh, in a boat space. I don't remember whether it was the Admiral's barge or the Captain's barge space, but I couldn't sleep in my uh, in my mess deck, which was called Premike Port, because it was so hot, the uptakes from the engine room came there. And, of course, the arrestor wires ran on along the top of that mess deck. Every time a plane came in, all you'd hear is bang, 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 and wake up with a fine sheet of asbestos dust all over you. So... <laughs> My best place was out in the barge space on what we used to call click-click beds. So I was out in the barge space when it actually happened and um, we knew about a minute, minute or so clearly beforehand that uh, the uh, the collision was inevitable. And what was unusual about that, Evans had performed that, that exercise four times that night with no problems whatsoever. On the fifth exercise of that night, cut across our bows. I once heard it described as riding over uh, a bit of corrugated iron on a, on a BMX. And that's exactly what it was like. 20,000 tonne cleaving through 3,500 tonne of uh, destroyer. We were doing 22 knots into the wind with um, a tracker actually on the catapult ready to fire. So you can't slow down 22 knots of 20,000 tonne pretty quick. It's sort of akin to a mini miner playing in front of a Kenworth at uh, 60 kilometres an hour. You're not, you're not going to come off too, uh, too slick if you get caught in front of that Kenworth. It's obviously a really emotional memory for you. What sticks out about it most in your mind? 
Personally, my feelings of helplessness, inability to do anything to save those men, because I saw the um, forage section of the ship go down. It went down on the port side about 50 foot away from us. A couple of the guys had got out and uh, were screaming and yelling at us. Um, we couldn't do much at that point because it was sinking. On the other side, on the starboard side of the aircraft carrier, we'd got the aft end of the destroyer tied to the quarter deck, so we were able to perform rescue operations. But on the port side where the uh, forage section went down, that's, uh, that's where the 74 men lost their lives. I've met and spoken with the captain of Melbourne, John Philip Stevenson, or JP as he's known. A fine man, a fine man. An outstanding man and interviewed him primarily about his wartime service in World War II. Yeah. But we did speak off camera about the Melbourne and the way he described it to me was he was the bigger ship, therefore every other ship has to give way. That's right, yeah. And he regaled to me that the CEO of Evans was incapacitated and not able to be on the bridge. Correct. Correct. He was in his sea cabin. And some junior officers were in charge of the vessel and for unexplainable reasons had steered it into an incorrect course and heading right towards the Melbourne. That's correct. Physics had taken over by then. It was inevitable. And then the ships collided and... Captain Stevenson was held to account and very unjustly so. Brutal, brutal stuff in Subic Bay. They held that man virtually prisoner for uh, three months in Subic Bay while they ran this incredible um, court-martial on a man who should never have been there in the first place. He's an absolute hero and he, he got himself castigated badly by the Americans. I think Gorton, our Prime Minister at the time, and I, this is just a personal opinion, I think Gorton wanted to be seen to appeasing the Americans, so uh, a sacrificial uh, killing of our, our captain might have been a way to appease them, but they were clearly in the wrong and our captain was clearly in the right. And something he might not have told you, when he returned on board the ship in Singapore when it was in dry dock getting our bows repaired, most of the ship's company lined the flight deck and gave him three cheers when he came back. He was grossly mistreated by the Navy. He was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing. Oh, yes, yes. Many, many years later, I think it was only about four or five years ago, they sent the letter to him. Five years ago, I think, yeah. Yeah, and terrible, terrible injustice. Everybody just wanted to look good, and it was all at the, uh, all at the cost of this man's brilliant reputation and a, and a great leader. He had a lot of admiration by his crew, a lot of admiration. This is a man who chased down the Admiral Graf Spey and the Bismarck. You bet. In World War II, he was on Shropshire for the signing of the peace surrender, gets through Korea, and then he's captain of the Melbourne, our flagship, and then he's just hung out to dry because, oh, the Americans can't be at fault. Correct. Absolutely correct. And it, it, uh, it's a blight. It's a blight on our history. It really is. He is a good man. He is a good man. I think he's still with us at this point. God love him. He is a good man. And he, uh, he was badly treated. It was, uh, it, was, it was a damn shame. Disgusting. And his late wife wrote a remarkable account of the incident. Joanne Duff, her name was, yes. She used to be on the Graham Kennedy show many, many years ago. That lady was dutiful in recording everything that happened to her husband. A lot of people say she was biased because it was the husband. But you read the account, the first book, uh, No Case to Answer, and then the second book, In the Wake of Melbourne, you'll find it's a very, very accurate historical uh, document. It's quite wonderful, the dutiful way that she uh, recorded everything and incredible way she supported uh, her husband, JP. I hear she was a bit of a personality around the ship as well. Oh, everybody loved her, yes. Yeah, she, was, she, was, uh, she was like a queen. She was the local queen. Yeah. In 2012, Angus Horden, co-founder of Thistle Productions and regular Life on the Line podcaster, interviewed the captain of the Melbourne, John Philip Stevenson. 
Mark and his colleagues knew him as JP, but Angus and I knew him as Phil. Angus interviewed Phil, with me behind the camera, for the film documentary miniseries for School and Country. The focus there was on Phil's childhood and World War II service. As commented on during my conversation with Mark, Phil had a remarkable set of experiences in the war, and after that he was of course a Korean Navy man. In that conversation with Angus, they touched on Phil's time in the Korean War and also spoke about the Melbourne-Evans collision. We did not feature that material in the documentary, just summarised it, as it was not appropriate for that production. So today, for the first time, we will release audio from that interview about Captain John Philip Stevenson's account of the collision. I think it was um, just a normal exercise um, where, where ships were supposed to be being engaged by submarines. We were, had one aircraft carrier, the Melbourne, in, in one group with five destroyers and uh, was another group, an American aircraft carrier with another five destroyers. And there were about six submarines. We were making a passage through and trying to, with some merchant ships that we had to sort of get them through. My group of five, five destroyers, their captains on board before we sailed, told them about the previous accident with the Melbourne and said, we don't want any more of that. And uh, whatever you do, be sure that when you're maneuvering, keep clear of me. And uh, if you are doing any maneuvers, be sure you're, you're on the bridge. When I was about to fly aircraft again, and one night at three o'clock in the morning, you'd bring a one of the destroyers around the stern who actually was rescue destroyer in case the aircraft goes in the water. And so I sent the signal for this chap to come back and uh, he turned the wrong way. And uh, so I got on the blow and immediately said, watch it, you're on a collision course. The captain wasn't on the bridge, he was in his bed and the two, two kids who were really untrained, not trained well enough, didn't know, lost the picture altogether and uh, panicked and when they were just about clear of me and just they were going across, going across my bows. I went left to get away and uh, at that point they had panicked and they, instead of just going on or putting wheel to the left, they said the first thing that came to their mind was hard to starboard, which meant she came all the way back, back in and under me again. The collision, they lost 74 of them. Uh, so it was a pretty sad occasion. And Phil, that, um, that ended your career with the Navy? Yes. They decided to court-martial me, and I was extremely hostile at, the, at that. And, uh, but the court-martial went through, and I got honorably acquitted. And, but I, that was enough. I didn't want, to, didn't want to stick around with them after that. But Phil, it's, it's a life of service to this nation and to the service of the mm. Navy. It was terrible that happened for the lives of the men lost. Mm, it was. You know, your career, your time with the Navy, to finish on that note, and, and it was only right that you be totally exonerated and totally cleared of all blame. Um, but nevertheless, it was very sad. Mm, not good. Um, your wife, Jo, wrote an excellent book presenting the facts mm. and supporting the case, mm. which is lovely that A, she's an American, and B, mm. your wife, she stood by you and wrote so strongly. Um, yes, you did a great job. I appreciate that, you know, you may well not have wanted to say certain things, but she could say things in her book. Mm. I didn't have anything to do with the book, quite seriously. I just answered questions. If she asked me something, I, I said, look, I can't do it. I'm in the Navy still. She said she's going to do it. 
The interesting thing was when when you resign, I, I resigned from the Navy, and if you resign and the Navy says they, they don't want you to resign, then you lose your pension. So I lost my pension. We had a house and two kids at school and a mortgage. And so again, that little girl, she had to go to work and she did a fantastic job. And Phil, you went to work then. Mm. And you, I understand you joined the AGL. Mm. Phil, um, I'm holding a letter that the Duke of Edinburgh wrote to you back in March 2000 concerning the honourable acquittal that you received from the court-martial concerning the Melbourne and the Evans uh, incident, 69. Would you care to comment on, on this letter as it is quite unusual that the Duke would personally write a note to this effect? I had been Prince Philip's aide in the, in the Olympic Games. So I'd spent six months with him and uh, thought I, I knew, knew him pretty well. We got on very well together. Uh, that was back in 56. Then when all this collision and stuff went on, Joanne wrote the book. And my, at my court-martial, my defence attorney was the, then became the governor of New South Wales. And uh, Prince Philip came out to pay a visit out here and he stayed with the governor. And Joanne, in her usual forthright fashion, said, I'll, I'll send him the book, send the Duke the book, he might be interested. I said, you can't do that sort of thing. She said, yes, he might be interested. So she got on to the governor and the governor said, yes, you'll give him the book. And so he gave him the book and that was it. Angus Horden will now read to you the Duke of Edinburgh's letter. 26th of March, 2000. Dear Captain Stevenson, Miles Hunt Davis has passed on to me the copy of In the Wake. I will remember reading about the original incident and wondering how it could be possible for the same ship to be involved in two such very similar cases. The odds against it must be astronomic. I am afraid I did not follow the details, but I did notice that you had been honourably acquitted after the court-martial and rather assumed that you would continue your career in the RAN. I have now read the book with the greatest possible interest, and I would like to congratulate your wife on producing such a well-researched and clearly written account of what was obviously a traumatic experience for you and your whole family. Miscarriages of justice may occur from time to time, but not since the Middle Ages, except under a modern dictatorship, has there been such a blatant and deliberate distortion of justice. I read the account with mounting despair and disbelief. I still find it hard to accept that anything like that could have happened in two of the great naval services of two free and democratic countries, which pride themselves on their respect for the rule of law and the unbiased administration of justice. With the Olympics coming to Australia again, I am reminded of those very happy days in Melbourne at the 1956 Olympics and of your great help and advice during that busy time. In 1962, I became president of the International Equestrian Federation and attended the next six Olympic Games in that capacity. That was quite enough for me, so I will not be disappointed to miss the Sydney Games later this year. With best wishes, yours sincerely, Philip. The collision forever left its scars on Mark Kinder. In episode two, Beginnings, Mark spoke to me about his grandfather being gassed on the Western Front and the troubles he had after the war. The Melbourne-Evans collision gave Mark a new perspective on his grandfather. To this day, with the Melbourne 
Kalisha and I still have the feelings of uh, helplessness and guilt about not really being able to do anything. Rational people thinking, yeah, says, look, there's nothing you could have done anyway, but internally you feel as if you could have done something. And I guess that's a feeling that uh, people uh, have over the years and uh, have had over the centuries when they've seen uh, other people in distress and feel that they could have done something but just couldn't do it. It's a, it's a horrible feeling, feeling of hopelessness and guilt. After going through all that, does that make you feel like you would have related to your grandfather quite well? Very much so. Very much so. The tension that that poor man must have felt in the trenches is quite incredible. I cannot conceive what it would even be like to do hand-to-hand combat, let alone uh, in the trenches. It borders on nightmare. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story and should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. It, it is not. Those who have experienced it with Army, Navy, Air Force or our beautiful, loving uh, nurses know that it, it's anything but a good story. It's not a good story at any at any game, whether you're the recipient or the giver. It's, um, it's, a, it's a damn horror story. It, it, it really is. It really is. That was episode four, Collision of Life on the Sea. Next episode, we return to Vietnam and hear more stories of naval combat. We featured a bit of Phil's World War II service in the season two bonus episode, Archive Interview Phil Stevenson. Find out more about Phil's life and naval career in the For School and Country documentary at forschoolandcountry.com. Never miss an episode. www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com And join the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget... <laughs>